Hello, Four Sober Chicks podcast listeners. We are Heather, Meredith, Dana, and Tracy, four women recovering out loud. We gather here from around the world to discuss all things related to alcohol addiction, sobriety, and various paths to recovery. We get real about the highs, the lows, and the amazing reality of living a sober life. This podcast is a creative collaboration by women, for women, and for anyone who supports women. Hey everyone, welcome to the next episode of Four Sober Chicks. This is Meredith, and as always, I am joined with Heather, Dana, and Tracy. And today we have another Dana that is joining us, um, actually up in North Dakota. So I'm going to read her bio really fast, and then we are going to jump into it because I'm actually really excited about this episode. So Dr. Masmeri went to the hospital after a 14-hour nosebleed on February 1st, 2017. He was gone for six and a half weeks between two weeks in the hospital including six days in a medically induced coma and a four and a half week inpatient rehab. Exactly three years later, Dr. Mary and his wife, Dana, went public with their story of his alcoholism, his climb out, and their journey back to a joyful marriage in a 27-part, nine-week series. They were stunned by the outpouring of support and people who wrote to say they too lived this life. In July of 2020, They knew they had more to talk about, and they launched Daily Dose of Dr. Mary and DD. It opened up all kinds of new doors, conversations, and opportunities, and lived out their mission to openly share their experiences with addiction so others feel less alone. So that last part I love, I feel like that's one of the core foundations of what we do here is we want to break the stigma and not have people um, left to suffer in silence. Um, so I think that that's absolutely amazing. Um, we did give obviously the brief story, but if you want to dive into it, we would love to hear what you have. Mm, well, thanks for having me on. This is exciting. Um, a five part conversation around addiction, uh, I think is, um, just to, to sort of piggyback on what you said does such an extraordinary thing because the thing that I didn't realize living through this was just the insidious nature of isolation and shame. Um, That's a wicked combination. And what I think is so unbelievable about it is I've yet to meet someone who didn't wholeheartedly buy into that wicked combination. And it just consumes everybody who subscribes to it. So I'm really happy to be here with you and to be trying to kick that combination to the curb because there really is no place for it, I think, in anybody's life. Um, So I think it's probably important for you and your audience to know that I grew up apparently in Candyland. I I just never had any exposure or experience with alcohol. I was 13, I think, the very first time I even ever saw a can of beer, and it was at a wedding being drunk by an adult. Um, there just, alcohol was just not a thing in my household. It wasn't something that was talked against. Um, it just was not a thing. Like we didn't fly to Mars. We didn't drink and we didn't fly to Mars. We didn't do things. And so it was just not an issue. So, um, I met my husband on September 11th, 2001. 
And we were together almost seven years before we got married. My son was five and a half when we met. He was 12 when we got married and we never lived together in that time. So when I met Maz, um, he's Irish and grew up in England. And he told me very early on that he drank one whiskey a night, which to my 28 year old self kind of felt like a lot of alcohol. But I just remember thinking, well, he's Irish, you know, somehow the Irish get a pass, which is kind of bizarre. Um, and it's probably fine. I mean, he has a PhD. He's incredibly bright. He had a good job. Must be fine. Okay, so fast forward, we get married in 2008, and almost immediately, it's pretty clear to me, he might have one glass for whiskey every night, but he's drinking more than one whiskey. But again, he's high functioning, and I, at that point, and really until he went into the hospital almost seven years later, I bought into what Hollywood told me an alcoholic was, which was somebody who crashed their car, got DUIs, lost their job. And Maz had none of that happen. So I was uncomfortable with how much he was drinking, which got progressively much, much worse. Um, towards the end, he was drinking in the mornings, straight up whiskey at 6 a.m. Um, and I didn't know this until we started talking through it on our own show. He was drinking a fifth of Jim Beam a day. So that helps explain where all the money went. <laughs> Um, but he just, he functioned outside of the house and fell apart inside of the house. So I used to jokingly say it was like I had an infant in my household because we would sit down to watch a movie and before the opening credits were over, he'd be, I thought asleep. Now I know he was passed out. Um, and he would sleep for 20 minutes and then be up for an hour and sleep for four hours. And one time we drove to Door County in Wisconsin, which is 10 hours away and he was asleep before we got out of the driveway and he woke up when I woke him up in Wisconsin. So it was just, I think we had a very typical alcohol experience in my house. I just didn't know that it was typical because not only did it not fit what Hollywood told me an alcoholic was, but I was telling no one. And so because I knew nothing and I wasn't talking about it, I just had no idea what was going wrong. And um, I'm a fixer. And so I just kept thinking I could fix him. I could say the right thing. I could do the right thing, which would snap him out of this because I didn't understand that he was no longer making this choice. This choice had been made for him by alcohol and he was no longer in control of it. So that's probably the you know, extended narrative to the pieces that you read. I could go on and on. I don't need to go on and on. So when that all happened, like what was that breaking point when he was like, all right, like we need, we need to figure, we need to figure this out, or I need to figure this out. Obviously it started with his stint in the hospital. Um, but what kind of did that look like, especially for you guys as a married couple? Cause I think that that is a question that we get all the time is I want to, I want to quit drinking. Do I have to make my husband do the same? Like marriage, obviously you're a unit and you've got to live as a unit. How, how did all that progress? Um, well, it was, it was 
difficult um, because he, um, again, I can look back now that I know so much more and have spoken to so many people, I can see that he just fell into the patterns that are so typical for people struggling with addiction. He was in constant denial that anything was going on. I would come down in the mornings and he might've slept downstairs all night, passed out on the couch. And I would just have a sense that there was whiskey being hidden in the couch. And so I would reach down and I would pull out a glass with a full ice cube and a probably two ounces of whiskey. And I would say to him, what's this? And he would say, well, it's not mine. And I would say, there are two of us in the house. It's not mine. I don't drink whiskey. And he would say, well, it's from last night. And I would say, can you explain the full ice cube? Yeah, it's, it's cold down here. He always had an answer. And it was an answer that I couldn't refute. First of all, he's a scientist. So he could sometimes sort of give me some kind of scientific thing that I, I could not respond to. So while I knew he was lying, I couldn't prove he was lying. And so then I started to feel crazy in my own mind um, <clears throat> all the time, all the time crazy. Um, and while it's always important for me to say that there was never physical abuse or anything of that nature to my son or me, I mean, my son was out of the house by the time we got to the end of it, but um, there was there was certainly neglect. There was certainly occasionally verbal abuse. I think one thing that I did was I really tried to push him to a breaking point because I felt like if I could just get him mad enough, he would snap out of it. Or maybe I thought if I could get him mad enough and he hit me, it would give me the courage I needed to leave. I don't know that for certain, but I, I think that that's possible, that that's what I was trying to do. Um, because of course, if I had left without that, I would have had to tell people why I was leaving. And I just couldn't, I could not figure out how to talk about that. And he never laid a hand on me, never. And I pushed as hard as I could. I'm not saying I never put a hand on him. Um, I went twice, twice. I just took all my frustration out on him. Luckily, I'm apparently a terrible fighter. So I didn't do any damage, but um, it was really hard because I knew I wasn't crazy, but I constantly felt crazy. He knew something was wrong, but he wouldn't address it, couldn't address it. And so we were living in the same house in not just parallel lives, but I would say lives that were going in exactly the opposite direction. And um, it was terrible. It was, it was heartbreaking. I had married an incredibly smart, dynamic, compassionate, funny, engaging man. And I was left these years later with just a lump of a kind of useless human being. And it, it just... It, it was just a terrible situation to be in and one I did not have any idea how to get out of. Wow, Dana, I can relate so much with your story. Um, my mother was an active, um, <clears throat> active uh, addict until she died. And 
I just wanted her. So I was, she gaslighted me and my sisters, everybody, the family, you know, I thought I was crazy, um, but I knew something was wrong. And I just never, she would never admit it. She would never, she would never, you know, just own it. And that's all I wanted. Um, and, and just like you, I, I mean, I, and I, I feel that now. So like, I trust my gut more now because when I, fe I used to feel it when I knew she was using it again, I, you know, maybe bring it up and then she would, you know, she would say, no, I'm not, but I just knew, right. But they're just deny, 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 deny. And I do think that's why I recover so out loud, why it's so important for me to say, okay, I am an alcoholic. This is what I do to stay sober because I want to, I want that for my daughter, for my family. You know, I want to, I want to justify, I want them to know I'm owning it. I'm taking responsibility because it never happened to me mm. with my mom. So I can totally, um, I totally get that and understand that. I, I'm interested though, because you open it up talking about isolation and shame. And I think that's what you said you found through all the stories that people have come and then especially probably with your husband and how, you know, my mom, when she passed away, I have her journals. I have not read through them yet, but I remember like looking at a page or two and I look at my own writing as, you know, a recovering alcoholic and there's so much isolation and shame. And I just feel like I could feel that from the pages of her writing. Right. So how, I mean, how did you see that? Um, I mean, that obviously was happening and you're here married, living on the same roof, you know, with someone. I don't know if you can just explain like a little bit about what it was like and then how it is like now. So now mm -hmm. that he's uh, he's recovered and he's, you know, how has that changed that picture? Mm. Um, first of all, let me just say, Tracy, I'm sorry you didn't get that resolution with your mom. Um, that's... I, I've not experienced that, so I can't tell you I understand it, but I can imagine how hard it is to have that door left open with no possibility for a solution. So I'm I'm sorry for that. Um, oh, thank gosh. <laughs> it, it, but I'm it okay. Was, I mean, yeah, but yeah, but go ahead. I forgive her. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I, mean, I love her. Yeah. You know, here, I accept her, right? Real. If, if your mom had died of cancer, there'd be unresolved issues around that and nobody would be mad about that. You might be mad that you lost her, but you wouldn't be mad that she got cancer. And what I really had to learn and sometimes still have mixed feelings about is the idea of addiction being a disease. It feels so different from a disease because it feels like you invite it in. No, mm -hmm. nobody invites cancer in, but you, nobody, mostly nobody shoves a drink in your face either. Um, but I can, I can say that, um, I, I think the reason that I, my mostly buy into the idea of it being a disease is because of things like everybody, everybody hits this isolation and shame thing. Everybody hits this like terrible lies and gaslighting that the other people around you know are lies and gaslighting, and yet you can't catch them. Um, an inability to manage it. You know, I there are things in my life that I feel like I'm a little bit out of control about, but I'm always ultimately in control. If I eat the bag of chips, 
I made that decision. The chips did not force themselves into my mouth. I think at some point, alcohol, alcohol does become the deciding member in that relationship. So um, for us, it, it was just, I, I think I couldn't believe I couldn't fix him. And he couldn't believe that he was where he was. One of the hardest conversations I ever sat through with him in our own program, he was talking to a woman um, who had driven her car into a um, light post and it broke the light post. And when the police came, they arrested her because she was really drunk. And she said something and his response was, I felt exactly the same way. I knew I was out of control. I knew I was an alcoholic, but all I could think to myself was you'd had an amazing life and you willingly threw it away. So you don't deserve to get sober and fix this and have it back. And if you see the video of this conversation, you see me look over at him in incredulousness because A, he denied that he was an alcoholic for all those years. So I didn't really know he knew. And B, there's a level of, so because your ship was sinking and I was a ship nearby attached to you, you decided I had to sink too. And that was really heartbreaking and infuriating because my child was in this environment and I brought this into my home. It's not like he's my child's biological father. He's the man I invited into our lives and trusted my most precious possession with. And thankfully today they have this extraordinary relationship, but boy, a lot of years were really garbage. And so there's just I think the layers of anger and sadness and disbelief and shame and fear and all of the emotions continue on, even when things get good, because I'm here to say recovery in the truest sense of the word is 100% possible. I never imagined a relationship like the one that we have today, never. When we were great at the beginning, we were at 50% of what we are now. I've never, I don't know another relationship I think is as fabulous as mine. Doesn't mean there aren't any. I'm just telling you, I, I don't look around and say, oh, I wish we had that. No, I wish we had what we have because we have it. It's incredible. The transparency, the openness, the honesty, the accountability, the joy, the laughter, the um, intellectual challenging, all, all of that, that is all present and um just such a gift and i i do think that's possible for anybody working through this but it's not easy and partly it's not easy and i did not know this until maz was about to leave inpatient rehab and move to what i jokingly call um daycare just daytime rehab for a while um, part of that contingency was we had to go to four therapy sessions, marriage therapy sessions. And um, what I learned in the first meeting, which was so incredible, the therapist sat down and he drew us a three-legged stool. And he said, couples who are in trouble have three legs to their stool, one couple, one partner, two partner, and then whatever one of you is focusing on. 
could be golf, gambling, sex, alcohol, drugs, doesn't matter. Does not matter what it is. When that becomes more important than your partner, your three-legged stool is out of balance. So he turned to Maz and he said, Maz, what's the third leg of your stool? And Maz said, alcohol. And I looked at him and I thought, you're damn right it is. And then he turned to me and he said, and what's the third leg of yours? And I had that like, <clears throat> because I had been so perfect and so... Um, I'd been such a good person and stayed with this very broken man. I didn't have a third leg. And then all of a sudden, like a waterfall, it washed over me. And I realized, of course, I'd had a third leg. The third leg of my stool was my son. And as soon as I uttered that out loud, it neutralized everything. It didn't fix everything, but it neutralized it because no longer was I here and Maz was here uh, up and down, or was I fixed and he was broken, or was I the good one and he was the bad one? We were utterly equal. We both brought something else to the table and it drove us the wrong direction. And I can't tell you if Maz started drinking more because I was so fixated on Quinn or if I became more fixated on Quinn because Maz drank more and ultimately we've decided it doesn't matter. But as soon as I realized I had things to work on, I had changes to make, I had brought problems to the relationship, I had participated passively in this fall into full-blown alcoholism, I could no longer A, um, be judgmental or B, assume that I didn't have things to work on. And that was utterly transformational for us. I do not believe any relationship can recover unless you are both willing to look at what you did to get to the point you were at to try to make your way back. I just don't believe that's possible. That, that, that's huge, Dana. Absolutely. And there's so much that I'm unpacking in my brain right now of your story that I've lived on both sides. I've lived your story and I've lived mine as an, you know, substance use disorder person. So like when I hear you talking about how much like the whole mad enough that you just wanted to make him snap out of it or hit you or whatever. I went through the same thing with my ex-husband because my ex-husband drank and was an alcoholic and, and it was like, all I wanted to do was, you know, just cheat on me, just do something that I can leave this relationship with something other than he drinks too much. Cause I didn't feel like it was enough to leave the, mm -hmm. the marriage. Um, and then when he actually did have an affair, I didn't leave. He quit drinking. We went to therapy. I wish they would have used this whole stool analogy because we were so focused on him and his issues. And what he brought to the marriage versus what I was bringing in and my baggage and, and what I was dealing with. And I didn't even think of that until you said it. And it's, you know, I, I, I've been thinking in the back of my mind, of course, there were things that, you know, a marriage doesn't go bad just because of one person. There's other things that are brought to the table that make it, you know, come apart. And um, I applaud you for, for staying and sticking it out and understanding that there was your side as well. Um, obviously my first marriage did not make it, um, because we didn't, we didn't feel that we didn't understand that there was actually a fourth leg. Mm -hmm. on the stool. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, and, and then I think of the flip side of my marriage now, and he has three kids and I come in and I am like sitting here thinking, oh my God, did I destroy their lives? Because I was the one who was drinking too much. And thankfully I have a very good relationship with all three of them now. Um, but yeah, man, your story speaks so much to all of that. And to be able to step out and do these this nine part series and then also to have your daily dose. And I would love for you to speak about your daily dose because I think it is such a wonderful thing and that it's still out there. And I know that you don't do it anymore, but it's still out there for everybody to listen to and to watch. So if you could maybe speak to that a little bit, I, I'd love that part. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so obviously we started the nine part series February 1st of 2020. It went through April. So, you know, it was shocking to have COVID pop up in March of that year and, and turn the whole world upside down um, as we were doing this, because he's a professor until very recently, I um, ran a medium-sized nonprofit. And so his summers were free and in 2020, my summer was kind of free because we were all working from home. So um, it won't shock anyone to learn that I'm an actor by training and a performer and a public speaker and all those kinds of things. And um, I really hesitated to take that nine part series any further in part because people who know me know that about me. And I didn't want people to think that I was trying to um, benefit from his addiction and our journey. That felt that felt really yucky to me. Um, but in July, so it had been a couple, three months or so since we had wrapped up that series. And we kept having conversations about, oh, wouldn't that be interesting to talk about? Oh, wouldn't that be, wouldn't people find that fascinating? And finally in July, um, we had done an online free training around putting together kind of TED Talks and that sort of thing. And one of their encouragements was, you know, you just need to have consistent content. And so I turned to him and I said, I think we have more to say. What if we just did some really focused, quick daily videos? We had done probably three or four live streams since April. Um, but they often really devolved because let's keep in mind in 2020, who was in the White House? I was furious about many, many things going on. And so they would start with an interesting topic and then something would trigger like a political bender for me and I would just go completely off the deep end. And so they were, they were just not appropriate live streams. So we set pretty serious parameters around them. No more than 15 minutes, consistent time every day. We would have a topic. It would be about one thing. We'd be back and forth and we would just see what happened. And so we sort of said, uh, let's see if we could do 50 just because we knew we had time. Well, we ended up doing almost 400 of them. Um, and what happened really quickly was I realized I still had a ton of work to do around my own recovering from the trauma of having lived through this with him. You know, he had um, four weeks of super intensive 
inpatient treatment. And then he had, I don't know, two or three weeks of the daycare outpatient. And then he was going to AA a couple times a week. And I really still at this point had not formally spoken to anybody except that marriage therapist for those four sessions. Um, and so sometimes we would get on and we would start to have a conversation and I would burst into tears because something would trigger in me or Sometimes we would be having a fight that morning and I would say to him, it's 8.30, sit down, we got to get going. And we would start and you would see us sort of wrapping up a fight. And we laughed a lot and all these things happened because we had to have content. So we had made a goal that we would talk about anything except our sex life. Nothing else would be off the table. So we talked about really hard things. And the more we talked, the more I uncovered, the more we uncovered about each other, the more he uncovered about himself and the deeper we were able to go until um, when we wrapped it up in December of 2022, at least for now, I think in part we wrapped it up because we felt like we're good. Um, and now we want to do other things with it, but not necessarily that. And that doesn't mean we don't still have interesting conversations or things that we could kind of have aha moments over. But those episodes are super real, super real, because that's the only way I'm interested in showing up. And I got really lucky to um, convince my plant cell wall biochemist husband that that's how he should show up too. <laughs> um, and so they, they are, they live on YouTube, they live on Facebook, it's got its own page, they live on um, LinkedIn, and they are there for people to go back to. Let me promise you, you probably can't come up with a topic that we didn't at least somewhere along the line touch on. Um, so it's just, I think they're a great, they're a great resource for other people, but they're also an incredible journey for us to look back on and look at what we did in um, two and a half years. This is incredible. So I'm kind of the part that I'm relating to is, you know, I'm just celebrated what 20, I don't know, 24 years. Um, and so thank you. <laughs> Sometimes I look at them. I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how we're doing this. Um, but it, the, the marriage survived the active addiction, the demise of the active addiction, the recovery. And much like you said, I went to treatment for 10 weeks. And I was, you know, able to do the work. They had an incredible family program. So they brought him, I got sober in Thailand. So they brought him to Thailand and they did a family pro. Well, I, we lived in China. So, okay. So oh, we were, okay. That's Thailand a little was less close dramatic. To, yeah, okay. yeah. That's, still, wow. I did get sober in Thailand. Yeah, it was absolutely <laughs> stunning. Um, but I needed a, a place that felt restorative and not punitive, right? So yeah. so they had this amazing family program and, and that was a game changer for him because, you know, he was the, I don't think you need to go to rehab. I don't think it's that bad. I don't, you know, and then he went through this whole thing and I was like, whoa, okay. And the parts that I'm hearing that really resonate is that like, there are two people in this relationship and um, my behaviors and his behaviors were symbiotic. And um, so I would love for you to touch on kind of the recovery of the relationship and this series that you did 
and what that looks like for couples who are going through this. Because like Meredith mentioned, you know, what I've seen is that we have people that either it strengthens your marriage or it blows it up. And I don't really, you know, um, because one person's getting really authentic and really real and making all of this change and that other person's either joining them or being left behind. I don't think that you can, so I do all this work and, you know, so we're, I have conversations with my husband about like um, his emotional awareness or, you know, these different things and, um, and try to accept where he is and so forth. So I'd love for you to touch about the series and what that looks like for couples. Well, I love that you um, laid out your relationship and that emotional piece, because I think um, <clears throat> I was sort of gifted with lots of little um, breadcrumbs along the way. Uh, I was sitting uh, during visiting hours while he was in rehab kind of early on. So it might have been week beginning of week two. And uh, you know, certainly I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over the fact that I really went through all of the emotions. It's not like he woke up from his medically induced coma, was finally sober. And I thought, oh, fantastic. Now it's all fixed. It, it wasn't fixed by any stretch of the imagination. Him, me, us, nothing. Um, it wasn't fixed when he came home. It just, you know, each of these steps um, took us further down the path, but I was sitting waiting for him to come in and we were, I was at a long table and a youngish guy, late twenties, early thirties was there. Um, he was the um, patient and his mother had come to visit and he was about to be released. And he said to his mother, I don't know what I'm going to do because I'm going to go home next week back to my girlfriend who's still using, who's made it clear she's not going to stop. And I don't know how I'm going to make it. And I remember thinking, okay, that's something for me to keep in the back of my head. I mean, I have never been much of a drinker. I drank more towards the end of Maz's addiction, just in an effort to have any connection with him. Um, but I, I, alcohol is not really a thing in my life. I can take it or leave it, mostly leave it. Um, but I just remember thinking, okay, we got to figure this out. Like, can he, do I need to erase any indication of alcohol in our lives? Do we need to never go anywhere that's got alcohol near? I, I, I just didn't really know. So um, that was a breadcrumb. Um, when he was in the hospital, I was outside. He, a social worker had come to see him and asked if I would step out. And I was listening to a patient in another room and a nurse was on, was with him and he was probably in his seventies. And, um, he was waiting to be released. And the nurse said, who should we call to pick you up? And he said, call my son. So she called his son and she, you know, hi, can you come and pick up your dad? Oh, you're busy. Well, could you come later today? Oh, oh you can't come today. Oh, oh, you can't come at all. Okay. Anyone else? Call my daughter, call my sister, call my friend. I, I mean, I think she made six or seven calls and nobody would come. And so I, all these things were living in the back of my head when he came home, which was really scary um, because I, I had learned virtually nothing in this time, except for whatever I had been thinking about. There was really no family program through the system that he went through. So I had not done any work formally with anybody. 
Um, and I had still told almost nobody. So I had just been home alone for six and a half weeks in the middle of winter, taking care of our dog and all the other things. Um, so as, as he came home and I started to slowly feel like I could trust some things, then three years in, things are very good. And what was so weird is that in the last years of his drinking, he was largely absent from my social media feed. And then all of a sudden, when I began to trust that our relationship might make it, our lives were so transformed. I mean, again, I told you he's Irish and grew up in England. So his mom and his sister still live in England. So we started traveling there a lot. Um, and we had, we just, our lives were suddenly super highlight reel on social media. And people started to write to me and say, with some kind of begrudging happiness for me, like what's going on at your house? And I could feel that people sort of had this, um, what's happening? This doesn't feel, this doesn't really feel fair. And that's when I said to him in November of 2016, no, I'm sorry, 2019, I think we need to show the dark side because people don't understand that the reason everything looks so incredible is because we walked through hell to get to it. And I gave him the opportunity to say no. And if you know anything about me, you will not believe me when I say this. I said to him, if you say no, I won't ask again. Uh, and thank goodness he said yes, because I don't, I probably would have asked again, even though I would have tried not to, because I felt so strongly that this was work that had to be done. Um, because I didn't know of any place talking like this. I didn't know of any couples talking like this. And I just felt like, what are we out? You want to judge me? Judge the hell away. I get out of my way if you want to be judgmental about this. I do not care. I do not care. I have earned the happiness that I have. And I think we can help other people get there. Um, and he said yes very, very quickly. And um, he, in some ways, had more at stake to lose than I did because he was the addict and I was just the spouse. Um, so when he said yes, then it all came together quickly because we decided we would write it. And then we did a podcast and we did a video series around it. And um, within minutes of it going live, we started to get feedback. I mean, it was shocking. My little website went from about 800 views a month to 25,000. Um, and the number of people who wrote, people we've known well, people we've never met, people from across the country and globe wrote to, in essence, say something to the effect of me too. And it was just mind-blowing that everybody could relate somehow. I mean, I just had no idea. It's inconceivable to say, I thought I was the only spouse of an alcoholic, but I really, I really had kind of convinced myself of that. I think he thought he was the only person who couldn't manage alcohol. And then he very quickly realized by going to meetings that, oh, wow, there's a lot of people who can't manage alcohol. But again, I wasn't going anywhere. So I was just in my little house. It was just the two of us. Sometimes our son was home, just the three of us. And so for us, it did feel like we were singular in this experience. Um, but 
daily dose, the, the nine part series, all of that gave me such a gift, not only of continuing to peel back the onion layers of my life and my experience, but gave me the gift of saying, oh my gosh, not only am I not alone, I'm in a huge network of people because alcohol affects almost everybody. Um, and that's a terrible gift. For sure. But so, I do think that like the platform that you're talking about, I was just thinking about that, about all the response you got and how you clearly hit this pain point in, in the greater, I mean, obviously you have some connection to having it. You already had a website and so forth, but that instant response. And I was thinking about kind of, we're all in recovery and there's a lot of people that are in recovery and are, you know, more and more recovering out loud. You have 12 step programs. You have a couple for people who are the family members, but there's not a lot. I don't think there's a lot of conversation about that element of it. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, myself, Meredith and Tracy all had parents, mothers who were addicts and I never, I personally never addressed any of that uh, in the 12 step thing in a public way. Like I've talked about it, but I really haven't, I don't know, like dove deep into that. I've talked about it as a springboard for my addiction. Mm -hmm. I talked about the trauma as a springboard for my addiction. But like, I think this conversation about being the spouse, being the, the other side of that, I think is really, really interesting and very clearly needed because of the response that you got. So thank you for putting that out there and, um, you know, being vulnerable um, because it is, yes, you don't have anything to lose, but you don't know what you have to lose. So it's terrifying to like, it, I call it, I just referred to it as running down the street naked. And like, that's what it feels like. <laughs> I'm doing this. I don't think it's not gonna be pretty. Um, I could get hurt, but I have to do it because I feel really compelled to do it. And but that's what it feels like. It's so, you know, yeah. it's so jarring for sure. It it was hard. Lots of times it was hard. Um, and my mom, who is probably our number one daily dose fan, despite having no experience with alcohol besides her son-in-law, my mom always says, yeah, you're fine. You're good. But Maz is the hero of this story to sit day after day after day and have someone go live to anyone in the world and say really hard things about you and just take it. I mean, who would choose that? Who would say, yes, I would love to sort of be shamed by one of the people I hold most dear for the world on a somewhat daily basis for a while and then a twice weekly basis. Um, and I think I think one of the things that we've really worked on is, is I get to certainly have my story and my experience and reaction. And quite frankly, I'm the only person who was mentally present for any of it. Maz missed the last four years of his life. Maz was in a coma. Maz was out of his mind. Maz doesn't know many, many things that happened. I'm the only one who lived it. So that has value, certainly. And I don't dismiss it. And I honor that I lived through it, that I stayed with it, and that I've worked through it and am working through it. 
but that doesn't mean that he had that he earned then the um punishment of a lifetime of public you know sticking him in the stocks the the metaphorical stocks in the town center and chucking rotten fruit at him i mean i that was another reason i think it was time to wrap up daily dose is i think it was time to think about all right we've pretty much mined all the things i needed and wanted to say all the things he felt and and didn't say all of that it's time to think about what does daily dose look like next how do we more actively help couples um who are on the other side of addiction because we are very clear that we're not in a place to help people who are moving into that initial stage of getting sober we don't have any training we're, you know, I'm an arts activist, actor, public speaker. He's a science professor. So we don't pretend that we can do what a um, rehab center can do. But we do know that we can be super useful to couples who have a little bit of sobriety or sober curiosity or whatever under their belts and want to figure out, well, what's next for us? We made it through that hurdle. What's the next, what's the next step? That's really what we're interested in now so that it's less about, and then you did this and then you didn't do this. That, that period is really done for us, but the work lives on for other people who need to go through that piece of the journey. Cause it's vitally important. I think that as the person who was present and aware for it, I get to say, and then you did this to me. And then this is how I felt. And this is what happened because he doesn't know. Well, and I think what's the most important thing about that and that we try to tell people all the time is recovery is a journey. It never ends. It's always evolving. You know, like our, my story nine years ago when I decided to quit drinking is drastically different, but the same to this day. And it's evolved into all these different things. And so knowing that recovery in any form there's not an off switch. You continue to live out your recovery for the rest of your life. And so I feel wherever that takes you guys and wherever that evolves, I mean, I think that it's drastically needed. I think, you know, just being vocal about the majority of the downs and a lot of the ups is drastically needed. That's what people need to hear. They have been so in tune with people's highlight reels that just shove them deeper and deeper and deeper into isolation, shame, depression, the whole nine. And it's, it's weird that the bad stories are what can be a light to other people, but they, again, still so many people think that it's just them and they kind of border that do I have a problem don't I but then they start to hear these little things that they're like okay well maybe I was right but that will not happen if people keep their mouth shut and we're just huge advocates of that so whatever you guys decide to evolve into whatever that looks like we would love to know um so we can help promote it and and the whole nine but I thank you so much for coming on today. Um, we will, um, when we post this and launch it, we will uh, let people know where they can find you, all your social media handles, the whole nine. Uh, for Sober Chicks, as our listeners know, is available on all podcast platforms. So 
wherever you listen. Thank you. And again, Dana, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the opportunity and um, for the work that you're doing too. It's so important, so needed. More of us need to do more where we can. So thanks for everything. Thank you, Dana. Awesome. Lovely to meet you. So much. Guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs> thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate you and wish you the best on your sober adventures. For more information and details on upcoming episodes, check us out on YouTube or Instagram at 4SoberChicks. That's number 4SoberChicks. We welcome your feedback and look forward to being with you on the next episode.